Hello and welcome to Own Up, the podcast all about equity compensation and employee ownership, brought to you by Global Shares. I'm your host, Chris Dorman, and I'm joined as ever by my friend John Bagdonis. Hi, Chris. Between this year's record levels of inflation and ongoing market volatility, it can be hard to predict what will happen over the next 12 months. So as far as companies all over the world gear up to face the oncoming recession, we're focusing on what you need to know to get your compensation strategy ready. Joining us to share insights on what's to come over the next year is Michael Gorski of Semlabrasi. Michael is a principal with Semler with over 15 years experience, and he's worked across a broad range of executive compensation issues in public and private company settings, including performance measurement and goal setting, equity and incentive plan design, equity plan authorizations, and benchmarking of pay levels and practices. We're delighted to have Michael with us today. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. So I know there's quite a number of topics that we're going to try to cover today, and I think that you know, the overarching one is the challenges, particularly with the uh, economic uncertainty. So why don't you kick us off with that? Yeah, and I think maybe before we get in there, John, I think it's helpful to you know, maybe take a step back and think about the context over the past couple of years of what's happened and, and how we got to where we are. And the past several years, of course, has been a roller coaster for a lot of companies with COVID happening in 2020 and disrupting a lot of uh, workflow and, and business operations and push for technical talent. And that created, you know, a little bit of a, a momentum effect, which snowballed, I think, into 2021. And then you, as you think about what happened in 2021, you know, there's a lot of access to cash and the SPACs and the market valuations were spiking and uh, having to react to that coming off of the COVID, you know, there's that recovery. And then 2022, you know, we thought heading into the year, uh, still strong markets, s- some signs around inflation, obviously that was happening. And then the middle of this year, the, the big market disruption and correction, you know, has created a lot of bit of conflict of as what we've done over the past couple of years, sustainable. How much change has your programs, comp programs undertaken over the past couple of years and, and how much can the organization withstand? And specifically, you know, I think taking a step back and thinking about your employee value proposition and even your you know, compensation philosophy and, and what's the right balance between those two? How do you have that right for the current context? as you think about making any of those discussions. Because I think if you look at your employee value proposition and compensation is, you know, a part of that, but not a driving force, you know, that may lead you to some certain choices otherwise. Um, and then your compensation philosophy, if you've been an aggressive payer overall um, with respect to pay positioning and, and, and equity users, how does that change in this current dynamic? Are you comfortable being able to, to pull back on that? Or is that going to create a lot of challenges for your organization particularly if compensation is highly prominent in your employee value proposition. So, you know, those are some, I think, some important context pieces to, to lay out as we begin this conversation. And so, you know, curious for, for what you all are seeing and, and how you think about it. Or is there any other things that you guys are seeing from the past couple of years that are important? I just want to jump in and, and thanks again, Michael, for joining us. But um, I just want to put in some context. So John and I both entered the workforce in what was a recession. Uh, we both, um, at the time we entered the workforce, were dealing with periodic, if not quarterly, adjustments to salary because of very high inflation. And we also were subject to the fact that we had you know, inflation that's much, probably double digits. So it's higher than what we're experiencing now. Having said that, we are not the target market here. I mean, we are one of five generations in the workforce. So I think the target market, this may be their first 
encounter with inflationary forces in more than a decade. So are you, that's what we're seeing. So are you hearing people ask for guidance regarding that? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think especially over the past 12 to 18 months, we've been in numerous conversations around, hey, you know, our company is asking about inflation. How does this impact, you know, pay actions? And, and you know, and obviously it's real for everybody in the workforce because it's, it's new and people are, you know, being impacted on that, you know, whenever they're, they're home and trying to take care of everything. And so I, I think the inflation piece of this is, you know, part of the puzzle. And for many, because as you allude to, this is the first time going through that. And, you know, I think they see a one for one relationship, but for those that have been, you know, in the workforce longer and have seen different cycles, you know, they know it's, it's not always that way. And you can't have a knee jerk reaction whenever some of that stuff happens. And that knee jerk reaction is something that, you know, I think it's, it's hard for companies to balance in the current markets because you, know, you don't want to wait too long. You know, we always advise our clients to take a step back and not have those knee-jerk reactions because you never know, you know what's going to happen in the next month or two and try to have a longer view. But it's tough for companies, right? You, you're, you're fighting you know, talent wars on all angles and you're, you know, the business is rapidly changing. You know, investors are changing as well. And so we get the tensions there and it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard thing to navigate for sure. I think the other interesting thing, too, and from reviewing some of your, your survey materials and other things that you provided, is that it, there is not necessarily a consistent impact from an industry standpoint. It is very, the impacts, whether it's inflation, whether it's a pandemic, are very different across many different industries. And I'm sure that's only compounds the whole discussion of compensation. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about uh, what you're seeing from an industry or segment standpoint as well. Yeah, it's a great point, John, right? You know, Every company is going to be hit differently because of how they've been organized, how they've been structured, where they are in their their growth orientation, or they you know mature and stable and you know have withstood things these events in the past, and they have a playbook that they can use to navigate this, and they have principles and objectives around around how to approach these things, and so you're going to see a wide range of outcomes from a compensation perspective heading into these cycles because there's companies that are in more dire situations and they're in survival mode. And so they're going to, you know, maybe have to take more aggressive actions and, you know, be a little bit more, um, you know, assertive in, in what they do and, and, and maybe break some precedent molds to, to survive. And, and others are you know going to be able to use this opportunity to invest and you know, poach talent and continue to drive and, and, and not face the, the same headwinds that other companies are going to be doing. And so all that's going to be playing into to what I think is going to happen and how they approach that. I think that's a great point. I mean, if you look at LinkedIn as an example, as a window into this, uh, after the, the announcements of, of reductions in force at Meta, companies like Apple said that they were sustaining in a more measured way hiring. And then there were still other companies that are probably on, you know, the more younger or the newer entries into, um, the market saying that they were aggressively hiring. So I think that's a great point where you're going to have pe- a mix of people depending on where they are on the scale. Yes, Michael. Another interesting question in terms of all this uncertainty is volatility. I mean, you've got all these questions about traditional compensation, but you throw volatility into the mix. And from an equity comp standpoint, where Chris and I live, basically, I'm just curious on your views from a company and across the board, how equity comp has been basically impacted by volatility and all these other factors. Yeah, that's a that's a big driver in a lot of this. I, I have a few clients right now who are going through that planning stages and they're trying to figure out what's the right budget 
you know, what's the right number of shares to, uh, to allocate? And they're starting from a value perspective to say, okay, we want to allocate this much value. And then at the end of the day, you know, we'll convert those to a number of shares. And I think a lot of companies are traditionally maybe have used, let's just convert the number of shares using, you know, the closing price on the date of the grant to determine how many number of shares. Obviously, the accounting rules are going to require, you know, what you report there. But in terms of how many shares you're going to be granting, you know, I think some companies have shifted to include a longer trading history. Um, so 20-day trading trading average to be able to say, this is how we're going to convert it because we don't want to you know, be heavily impacted by the, the volatility and the prices day to day. And so that's that's one piece is just around, you know, what how are we going to convert all that equity? You know, if we are dollar denominated, what's the right approach? Some companies use a 90-day, so that really smooths this out. But you can get some distorted views of, you know, what's that 90-day average compared to what today's what today's price is? And that could be a meaningful difference. And so there's a balance there of we don't want to overreact to volatility, but we do need to acknowledge that there's it can mean a lot for certain people. And then I think the other thing with volatility, John, is we're seeing an increased valuations, whether that be in options or even, you know, performance market-based performance awards. You know, previously you might have been able to get maybe more attractive fair valuations on those awards to really help provide leverage to folks. But if the volatility is increasing those, the valuations for those awards are going to be less attractive. And, and so you might see not as many uh, awards of those types during these periods. And then, you know, I think the final piece of volatility is around, you know, just thinking about your equity mix as well, right? Are you okay with the volatility and that the potential leverage in this risk reward situation? And are you willing to to live with that dynamics or do you want more stability? And so do you use more RSUs and, and how do you think about that mix throughout the organization to to have the intended effect around, you know, how much do I want to pay for performance and the leverage that I want to have versus, ooh, we really need to pay for stability. We need retention during this period. And what's the right mix and investing there? I appreciate you helping us, you know, live in our world as far as the equity. But as far as compensation is concerned, equity is probably only about 40% of it. There are also new factors addressing compensation overall whether it be ESG or whether it be DE&I. Uh, I, I'm a little concerned because I'm seeing that people aren't really taking those as seriously as they may, as they probably should be at this point. But, you know, I'll, I can back off on that and say maybe it's the newness and, and they're waiting for a little bit more guidance and, and structure. But what is your view on those uh, as far as impacting overall compensation st- strategy? Yeah, right now, you know, I think everybody, most most of the clients and companies that I work for, I think they they acknowledge, hey, this is here. It's not going away. ESG in particular, you know, these these metrics and the the benefit to the the organization and the the long term impacts. You know, I think there's there's stats around that around how it's supporting the business and it leads to better outcomes. So I think it's it's real for companies, and you know, the question is. Is it right to put it into incentive programs? You know, that's the first step is, do we have metrics that have clear, direct, explicit connection to the business performance? Uh, because there's some metrics that are within the ESG that, you know, maybe they're not best suited for that. And so, you know, whenever we're talking to clients, it's, I think, first building a materiality matrix, right? Like what's most important for the business and you know how how does what how does it align with you know other stakeholders and, and and how important is it for you 
And then if there are some of those metrics that are critical externally, critical for the business, then let's have a discussion about that. And if, if we think we can set meaningful goals and we feel good about that, then, you know, let's have that discussion. But in my experience, you know, a lot of companies really struggle with this because it's, it, it is, it is new. The data on it is, you know, I think squirrely because it's hard to get a sense for what do you set goals off of, you know? And so I think there's a lot of organizations out there trying to do more around what are the right standards in terms of metric measurement and, and how should we think about all that? And it's, that's a challenging process. I have a number of companies that are, I think, are doing it well. And they've been, you know, I think in the private sector, I think they've been willing to take that on because they don't have the disclosure requirements. And so it's a little bit different. And so they've been able to, to play around in their sandbox a little bit more. But for public companies where they have those disclosure implications, that, that may be a difficult story to tell sometimes if it's not, you know, the outcomes that you want. And, and so I think you know, companies are protecting against that. And, and so it's, it's a difficult conversation. And I, I think we're seeing most lean towards the annual programs in that regard because of the subjectivity and maybe the flexibility around how you can talk about it. But for me personally, I think there's, there's more value in having it in the long-term program because of, these are much longer-term oriented metrics. And, mm-hmm. and it comes back to how, how can you set goals? And if you can't do that, then you know, let's not put it in there just for the sake of doing it. We have to do it to make sure it fits right for us. And Michael, you brought up what I thought was a very important point in terms of materiality, in terms of linking up what those metrics are in terms of also with what the business goals and objectives are and that no one, no company wants to be on the wrong side of ESG from a, from a proxy advisor standpoint, but you also don't want to do put a metric out there that just for the sake of having a metric that's not necessarily linked into the business. And so uh, I know that there are obviously some leaders, uh, particularly like from a financial services standpoint where Chris and I sort of live that um, I know particularly um, from an ESG standpoint or definitely like from a human capital standpoint, we're sort of leaders from an industry standpoint collectively, but it's interesting how there are a lot of other followers too. But I think the really important thing is that materiality. So maybe just talk a little bit what your observations are from an industry standpoint from ESG. Yeah. You know, I think where we've seen companies really support this and build upon it, I think, is when it's really ingrained in their culture and those where it's part of their employee value proposition. It's very clear in their underlying operations that they work for. And, you know, the leadership is very convicted and compelled about it. I think that's where we see those leaders in that space, John, is you know, the willingness to step out and say, no, this is super important to us and we're going to do it. And, you know, we don't care if our outcomes are going to be negative. We think it's the right thing to do. And, you know, we need to improve performance on that. Whereas, you know, obviously I think that's the, the front end of, you know, certain companies out there, but a lot of them are in the fast following stage, right? They don't want to be left behind. I think they, they recognize it, but they're, they're faced with the challenges of what makes sense. And so I think that's why you'll see a lot of companies have, HCM or diversity type metrics in their programs because that's an easy starting point. It has somewhat of a, a you know a direct connection to the business because of you, know, you want to have diverse thought and you want to have your workforce make up you know the same demographics of your customer base so that you're you're reflecting you know all the different perspectives and able to 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 meet all those um, requirements. So it's 
it's certainly not an easy one. And, you know, I, I think a, a number of companies have probably rushed to it for the sake of putting it in. And, you know, they might feel differently about it now, 12, 24 months down the road of, oh, gosh, you know, we've we put this in and now we're living with it. And it's, it's going to be hard to take out. And so being convicted and feeling very strongly about, yes, we're doing these for the right reasons and there is a direct connection to the business, then, then it certainly makes sense to do that. So just to recap for a minute, uh, we've already talked about some of the historic uh, factors that have been coming up uh, over the last 18 months. Inflation, you know, um, STEM and the, you know, the competition for STEM employees and volatility. And we've also talked about some new aspects that ESG and DEI, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I mean, is there something that you want to bring out that people should be looking towards in the next six to eight months? Um, what they sh- what they may not have considered yet, and uh, they should start to evaluate and start to be more cognizant of. And uh, are you talking specifically around ESG metrics? Chris, or, or just broadly compensation-wise? Well, I mean, I, I was talking about ESG, but maybe broadly, if there's, if there's something else that, that is on the horizon um, that people may not be aware of yet, I'd love to be able to say, look, we introduced something and we started to be, you know, maybe a tickler where people can start, you know, learning from, from you and from uh, other experts that we may have had that things are, they should be looking forward. So both. Yeah, in terms of ESG, I don't I don't know that there's any silver bullet or any one indicator that's, you know, leading the way in terms of this is the metric that everybody's going to use, right? Because it is so client specific, so business dependent. You know, I think some of the the proxy advisor push has been, you know, around climate disclosures and you know, I think broader uh, environmental goals, I think, just because of the maybe the macro impact that that can have on operations, you know, overseas, and the ability to have meaningful supply chains and, and effective supply chains as well. So I think that there does seem to be a little bit of a trend on that, but that's again, that's that's hard to measure. Not everybody's going to have a, a meaningful goal to be able to apply to that. Um, and then on the other end, you know, it, it, it's interesting that we, we've talked about companies that are culturally ingrained in this and it's very big and part of the mission you know i do think we might start to see you know some companies step out on the limb with some social dynamics and more community based and you know if you think about maybe some insurance companies you know you know they're obviously heavy in the the community and the local community space and so is there stuff that they might bring out that's more on the local level uh, and so i could see some willing to take a step out there. But again, I think that's going to be highly dependent on, you know, the leaders of that organization and the culture and the mission that they're, they're striving towards. Yeah, I appreciate that because I mean, I, I, you and I have had a discussion previously about something, but the E, S and G, um, the E and the G are a little bit more arbitrary. The S we think is the one that's, you know, uh, the one that's probably going to be recognized and it's a little bit harder because it's subjective, but I, I thank you. I think bring, you know, some folks bringing that out in some sectors, bringing that out is, um, is reassuring. I was going to say maybe one other area of, of interest that obviously at least all public companies are focused obviously on their shareholders. And so uh, I think there's increasing, I, I don't want to necessarily say shareholder activism, but increased expectations. I know I've seen some of your materials where you talk about that and it just, Things like say on pay and how that is becoming more and more ingrained, but it's some interesting trends based on, you know, the size of the companies and, in, and industries, et cetera. And uh, just 
interested to hear your views just in general on say and pay where and where that's going to go from a particularly from a proxy advisor standpoint. Yeah, that's a great focus. You know, I think a lot of companies obviously care about say and pay. It means a lot about what their shareholders think. Um, you know, I think a lot of companies over the past, we've seen at least over the past maybe four to five years or so, companies are you know, maybe more comfortable with navigating the say on pay pressures, right? I think they understand the playbook that if we do get a lower vote, here are the things that we can do to recover. And so I think there's just more sophistication around navigating, you know, if we are willing to step out of the edge in terms of compensation design and take that hit on say on pay, how can we recover? And being more thoughtful and planful about, okay, yes, we're willing to do this. And we have these things on the side that if we do face those pressures, we can come in. But John, to your point on the shareholder expectations, you know, it's it's something we've seen in the the data and the vote outcomes over the past couple of years is this divergence between average vote outcomes for companies in the S and P five hundred versus the broader you know Russell three thousand index. And what we're seeing is there's you know starting to be somewhat of a uh, you know a bifurcation. It's it's not that significant and still early, but we're starting to see a trend where. You know, S&P 500 companies are, are experiencing lower vote results. And I think you know, a lot of that's due to, due to those increased expectations around, hey, you know, we're not going to you know, let you do a lot of the special stuff that you otherwise might have done five, six, seven years ago. We're holding you to a higher standard here and the pay levels as well. So we're seeing those uh, comments and criticisms of you know, the programs as you know, uh, I think a clear demarcation around, you know, shareholders are caring about that. And, you know, they're, they're using the S&P 500 as a, you know, I think a, a way to kind of draw that line in the sand. Whereas, you know, I think some larger, you know, the broader index of Russell 3000 companies, you have a lot of mid cap, small cap companies that are still in growth mode. And I think in order to support that growth, there's, you know, a little bit more you know, unique things that they need to do. And so I think there's maybe a little bit more forgiveness, but you know, I wouldn't say significantly so, but it, it certainly seems that the the S and P five hundred is being held, and larger companies in general are being held to a higher standard. I was going to say too that there are uh, there's been the phenomenon, at least over the last couple of years, of because of volatility and economic downturn, a lot of special awards, and that has compounded sort of the say on pay. I know that's the example with Apple, uh, with the CEO's special award or, or award of got it. A, a no recommendation I remember from ISS. And so uh, I'm just curious again from your your views about how do you navigate all of these things where you're trying to attract and retain and engage top level talent. And in many regards, you have to do that to some degree with special awards. And it's not typically perceived well in, um, you know, on the, the, the proxy advisor side of the world and institutional investors sometimes. So. Yeah, I come back to some of the context from 2021. You know, I think in the SPACs, you know, there was a lot of energy and momentum around going public, access to liquidity, and a lot of CEO founders, mostly from private companies going public, and even some from you know public companies were getting these you know large performance, multi-year performance-based awards. Not so different from you know the Elon Musk award that he received several years ago, and people following that model because. Look at what that did for Tesla, right? It, during that period, there's tremendous success and it can be a great motivator, you know, but I, I think the challenge now and the volatility that we're seeing is it's, it's creating a lot of conversations around this, you know, companies that put that in over the past couple of years, those goals now are, you know, probably viewed in a much different context and, you know, shareholders and proxy advisors aren't going to, 
like if you're you're playing with those goals or resetting that. And so companies are going to have to to live with that. And then you know the other thing that we're seeing, John, is you know investors are starting to build these specific features and elements into their proxy voting policies and starting to have more of a fine line and firm position on, hey, companies that do this, you know, we factor that in explicitly into our conversation. So again, I think the sophistication around pay programs externally has has certainly, you know, advanced over the last five to 10 years because of say on pay. And it is creating more more things that you need to navigate and balance whenever you're you're creating some of these awards. So I think it's, it certainly is. And then the other thing I would just say is, you know, even with options, you know, options inherently are kind of, you know, price, price denominated and, and can be underwater. And so, you know, some companies right now may be determining, Hey, do we need to you know, exchange those? And, and because of the volatility and the exercise prices over the past two, three years are very unattainable and it's creating lack of engagement on teams and, that's going to be another conversation that some companies may have. You know, I think it's challenging to do that in this context. And, but, you know, again, I think some companies that are in survival mode may have to go there. Before we close out, and I just wanted to thank you again for joining us today, Michael, I just wanted to end maybe possibly on a positive note. Mm-hmm. Rather than ask for a specific company, is there a specific sector or industry that's really done well, really, you know, really recognized what they needed to do during the competition for talent and has come on, come out on top and, you know, that other industries or sectors might look to for, you know, to see what success really looks like? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, my, my initial reaction was, you know, I think the tech sector is, I think, more creative because they have to differentiate more. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure that that differentiation and that creativity has led to, you know, a lot of success. I think for some it has because again, it's kind of fit within their culture and they're able to carve out their their lane for that. You know, there's others in the the consumer product sector that I think are, I think, because of the the, their orientation around, you know, services of services orientation and the, the the human capital that you need to support those businesses, I think they've just been having to wrestle with that for a lot longer, and so they might be one to think about. But you know, it's impacting all these industries differently. Um, and, and my experience is is more limited to some of those, so it's harder to speak to some others. Um, but that'd be my sense, Chris. Is you know. I, I'd want to say tech, but I think again, there's there's a lot of unique, crazy ideas that maybe sounded good at the time that you know are are not right. Some of the the accelerated vesting to go into one year uh, in certain cases, right? Like that's created some challenges. Now it sounded good two years ago, whenever the markets were good and you're attracting talent and you're growing, but now you're you have some critical retention challenges. People can leave, and so you know th- there's certainly some some wins and case stories and that, that are successful. And I have a number of clients that have been able to navigate that. And I, I think it does come back to, you know, their underlying compensation principles and philosophy and those that can stay closest to that and are intentional around, you know, whether or not to make one-off decisions are going to be best prepared to navigate through all of this and, and, and feel comfortable about it because they've, they've defined the rules and they're, they're not, you know, reacting to the the news of the day and they're, they're having a long-term view of it. You know, one other interesting point or thought that I had is you were mentioning that 
is we're going to see an interesting dynamic, I think, going into the latter part or the end of this year and the beginning of next year with some companies now, particularly now in the tech sector, beginning to lay people off, you know, have staff reductions and that that will take some of the heat, I would think, off of the need to find or to, to be creative in attracting talent because the pool, at least in theory, should increase. But just curious about your thoughts, how that will you know potentially play out into the into the next year. Yeah, that's a great point, John. We work with several, obviously, sectors outside of tech. And, you know, some of our perspectives or thinking there is like, this might be a, a, an opportunistic time for them, right? Because that market is becoming a little bit more expansive and they're, you know, for those that can invest and they're, they're, they're willing to grow and, and maybe go after that talent. It's certainly better now to do it than it was 12 months ago. You don't know what it's going to be like in 12 months from now, but... If, if you have that opportunity now, it's to your point, there's, there, there is that maybe supply or the demand out there to, to, to get there. So, um, yes, I agree. I think, you know, it, it might help level the playing field a little bit more in terms of attractive offers and, you know, companies that might be able to offer more cash or more stability, uh, or more, more in the value, employee value proposition. You know, those, those might be more attractive now for people to, to get away from that volatility that's, you know, we've talked about on this. Uh, you know, just going more towards companies that are safe and stable for the next couple of years to to just to stand this out. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. And I wanted to make sure that everyone, as far as the listeners know, we're going to have your contact details, as well as much of the material that you shared with us as far as surveys and other details from Sam Labrosi. Thank you. Great. Well, I very much appreciated the, the opportunity and navigating this with you all. And Uh, It's certainly, it's a challenging time for most out there. And I know we're all trying to help our clients. Thanks for listening to Own Up by Global Shares. This podcast was brought to you by Global Shares in association with DustPod. Make sure to follow us on your podcast player of choice and to be notified right away when we release a new episode. And if you like what we're doing, why not share this with friends and leave a review? Until next time, take care.